listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey everyone, just wanted to give you a heads up that this episode talks about suicide, both suicide prevention and living with the grief when someone dies of suicide. If you or someone you know needs support, please reach out. You can call the National Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-8255, or you can text HELLO to 741-741. Paula Fontanelli, who was born and raised in Brazil, never imagined that she would leave her career as a journalist, become a psychotherapist who specializes in both suicide prevention and supporting those left behind when someone dies. This shift was personal. Just over 15 years ago, her father died of suicide. Paola was left with so many questions, and she turned to her journalistic skills to search for answers. She began interviewing friends and family who knew her father, and she ended up uncovering so much she didn't know about him, about his past and the pain that he carried. The process of grieving her father's death and researching his life was transformative. In the years since his death, Paola trained to become a therapist, wrote a book called Understanding Suicide, Living with Loss, Paths to Prevention, started her podcast, Understand Suicide, and worked closely with the Suicide Prevention Month campaign, which happens in September, both here in the U.S. and Brazil. Paula and I go deep in this episode, deep into the questions that she and so many people wrestle with when someone they care about dies of suicide. We talk about anger and guilt and how they intermix often leading to blame. We also talk about how Paula supports clients in working through these painful emotions and grappling with the ever-present question, why? Paula, thank you so much for making time to be on Grief Out Loud with me today. I'm so looking forward to our conversation. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And Paula, your father died just over 15 years ago. He died of suicide. And with it being, you know, almost two decades, how do you think of him now, this many years out from his death? Hmm. It's, a, it's a good question. I think that writing my book was paramount in terms of the image that I had of my father because I found so many family secrets that were central to who he was and his identity that I didn't know. I'll give you an example that uh, I was interviewing his best friend who was also married to his sister. His closest, uh, it was the only sibling he was close to. He was, he was very distant from his family, and I never knew why until I interviewed him. I was talking to him, and I asked, uh, Uncle, can you tell me a little bit about my grandfather? Because I don't know anything about him. The only thing I know is that when he died, my dad was very young. He was 12 years old, and he left the family in poverty. So my dad had to work, and, and my, my, my uncle was looking at with this, you know, puzzled eyes. What? Who told you that? And I said, well, that's what I know about. That's the only thing I know about my grandfather. 
And he said, Paula, no, when he died, you had been born. You had been born, your older sister was born too. And he was in his 30s when he died. And I was just so, I, I was speechless. And I looked at him and said, no, there's something wrong here. So I said, maybe, maybe I created the story. So I called my older sister and I said, what do you know about that? And she told me the very same story I just told you. And then I called my younger sister and again, yeah, I died when he was 12, blah, blah, blah. And I was, and I looked at him, listen, this is the story we know. So that's the story he told us. And that was for me a turning point in understanding my dad because I found out my dad was, was an alcoholic. And from what I knew about my grandfather, the only thing that he told us was that he was addicted to gambling and that he lost all his money. He was very rich. He lost all his money to gambling. So I knew that there was addiction there too. But what my uncle told me was that he was actually an alcoholic and he actually died of it. He had been taken to a hospital for a few months. He was there. The doctor told my, my grandfather that he, if he ever drank again, he would die. And he did it when he left the hospital. He went straight to a bar and he died there. So can you imagine the shame? And after that, I just decided to talk to his brothers, to his sister, to find out a little more about the story because it did change a lot the way I saw him. Uh, I understood the shame. I understood why he felt he had to kill, quote unquote, his father for us and wouldn't talk about him because there was too much of his own father in him that he was ashamed of. It just gave me a, a very different view on who he was. He seemed to be this rock of a person. He was, he came from the military, so he had this, you know, macho, you know, I can handle it all. And we believed in that image. But after, you know, after what happened, I just, I just, I started digging into his life and finding out so many things I didn't know about. It was so many secrets. Your story reminds me of so many people I've talked with who, after someone dies, they learn so much more about their life and that oftentimes there's things that raise a lot more questions. And it sounds like in your case, there were, there was information that maybe helped put things into context or perspective for you with your father's death and particularly his, his death by suicide. Yes, very much so. It answered so many questions, but it just, it just told me a lot about his suffering and his pain. It answered a lot of questions regarding even the alcohol, the silence and all this mask that he had to put on all the time about being this stoic, very strong person. So it, that's too much for a human being, isn't it? And at some point you cried and he did. Speaking of the idea of shame, and, and I think of that being sometimes a very culturally specific concept in terms of what creates shame and how people carry their shame. And for you, I'm curious, growing up in Brazil, and now living here in the U.S. and working as a as a therapist, what do you see as some of the similarities or cultural differences in terms of how people think about someone dying of suicide and, and just that that entire idea around mental health challenges and then specifically around suicide? I think there are more similarities than differences, unfortunately because there is a lot of stigma associated to suicide in Brazil as well. We are 
massively what used to be. It's been changing over the last decade, but we are very uh, Catholic country, the majority. And now it's not like that anymore, but of course that takes years to change. And I think that in a way, religion brings a lot of shame into suicide. So that's one aspect of it. But I also see that over the years, it has been changing a lot. And I think this month of awareness, September month of awareness was a key factor in that because we now have at least, and I, I see that even in the media, the coverage that has changed and how it has improved a lot. When I remember when I, when I published my book in 2008, there was nothing about that in Brazil, not a book about suicide. Mine was the first one that actually talked to the general public. And that's why I published it because there was nothing there. And I had been grieving the death of my father with no information out there to help me. So I decided to do that for other families. But I think the shame part of it is very similar. Although it has changed, it is hard. People don't want to talk about suicide. They avoid it as much as, as they can, but it has been improving over the years. And I think the, the awareness month has a lot to do with that. And you're talking about the suicide, World Suicide Prevention Day and World Suicide Prevention Month, which happens in September, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, and it's the same in Brazil. We are, we have, as you know, we have the day, the 10th of the, the September. But in Brazil, it, it's been very active. The media has been very active during the month of month of September. So much so that we are now reevaluating that. We're, you know, people who work with suicide prevention, we're starting to think, well, maybe this is overload because by the end of the month, we've been talking so much that people don't hear anymore. So we're starting to rethink the month of September because I think it's it's been it's been too much right now. You've had two major deaths in your family. You had your brother died a few years before your father. And I'm wondering for you, if you've noticed how, how your grief looked different for each of those deaths. You know, Jenna, for me, it just, I, I love working with grief as a therapist. It's my passion. And I often say it's always different and not only different individually, it's different for me than what it would look or feel like for you, but also also different deaths will feel different. And my brother, the way that I grieved and I still do my brother and my dad are so different. I think in a way, the fact that I have, I have um, faced my father's death and relived his death in so many different ways, but I have come to understand it and, and I have found peace with the suicide is very different from the way that I feel my brother's death because it just feel, felt so senseless at the time. He, it was an accident, he was paragliding and he just fell, but I associate his death with his drug addiction. So there was addiction with my brother as well. Uh, back then, what they told me was that he didn't properly assemble the uh, the equipment that he was putting together. And I knew my brother, he was very careful with these things. So maybe, maybe there was drugs. And he was so young, he was 26 when he died. And it was his pre-death, I think, made it worse because he'd been in and out of rehab a few times and 
I had been with him in rehab and I think it was the most painful experience of my life. For those who are listening who have been through this, to see someone you love. Sometimes I would go visit him and he couldn't even talk because he was so drugged. Um, it's part of rehab, I guess, but it's just heartbreaking. And I think it's still harder for me, the grief over my brother than it is uh, what happened to my father, although it sounds you know, difficult to understand because my dad killed himself. But it's really hard when I think about my brother and, and being so young and having zero control over his decisions and his behavior and coming out of rehab and getting into drugs and relapse over relapse. And it was actually a few days after he came out of his third rehab that he died. So it just shows that it is individual and you even though you're the same person, you grieve differently for different people as well. And such a great reminder too of why, you know, at least at the Deggy Center, we really avoid any of those truisms that can be out there that like, when someone dies this way, that's the worst possible death, or this is the most traumatic way to die, or any of those things that try to categorize or put a hierarchy over it of, someone might hear your story and, and make an assumption that your dad's death would be the most painful because it was suicide. And to hear you say, like, I have a better understanding of his death. And, and for you with your brother, there's just a lot of unanswered questions and, and, and a more like, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but just that sense of having watched him go through rehab. And there's just a lot more there that feels really I don't. I can't even think of a good word for it. I don't want to put words. No, in your there's mouth, no like... good word for that because I've been thinking about that over the years, and it's just harder for me. My grief over my brother is much harder than what happened to my father, and, and maybe it's also because I have, I have turned my dad's death into a purpose, and I haven't done the same with my brother. I think the months before were so hard. And then to end up in death, it was just senseless to me. Yeah, and you've led us into where I wanted, the question I wanted to ask you next about, you know, you talked about finding, I don't want to say meaning, but like purpose in your life connected to your dad's death and that prior to his death, you worked as a journalist and you really shifted careers and became a therapist and have really focused in the areas of suicide prevention and, and supporting people who have had someone die of suicide. And you've already talked about this a little bit, but just wondering how that engaging in that work shifted things for you and your own grief around your father's death. Well, you know, I've, I've thought about this over the years. And I actually think that being a journalist and being a therapist is not that different. <laughs> because a journalist, what, what we do is we listen, we ask questions, but we listen more than we ask questions. We try to observe what's underneath silence. You know, why are they not talking about this? What's not being said here? And communication is key to central to both. But I think that it was a natural thing that happened to me. When my dad died, I started obsessively studying about suicide. I just became so passionate about it that it was natural. I, at first, the first two or three years, I was just focused on suicide and understanding, and then I decided to write a book. But after that, it, it was just something that had to happen naturally. 
and I, you know, I did my, my training in psychoanalysis first and then my master's in clinical mental health. And I think that understanding and studying and still today, still today I catch myself sometimes reading a book or listening to a podcast and I associate that with him and I go, wow, that helps me understand what happened. There's still questions unanswered and I think that's, that's one of the traits of suicide. You never have the why answered. Uh, there are always questions that you go, wow, years and years later, you, you find out something about the person and you go, oh, that helps me understand that moment in his life. So I think they're, they're very similar and they both help me through my grief with my father. That's so reassuring to me because I always wondered like, what am I doing hosting a podcast? I'm trained as a social worker. So I feel very reassured to know that there's a lot of overlap. You mentioned to the questions that come when someone dies of suicide and, and the question that seems almost everyone asks and asks repeatedly, which is why, why did this happen? And you've talked about the research and the studying and the interviewing family members that sort of helped you piece together some elements of, of why with your father's death. And I'm Wondering when you're working with clients and with families, how do you help them navigate that why question? That's a great question because I have never talked to someone who lost a person to suicide who doesn't struggle with the why, never. Two things that I've never not seen in someone. One is the why question, the other one is guilt. There is always an element of guilt there. But the why, I think what helps is, first of all, validated. You will always be asking that question and you may never find the answer. And finding peace with, with not knowing the answer is the hardest for many people. And I think there are many stages of, of answers to the whys. I, I just, I, I don't know if you have had the same uh, experience now, but the last Two, three weeks, I've heard of a few cases of suicide of people I know very close to me in Brazil. So one of them was a good friend of mine, a very close friend of mine. Her nephew took his life. He was 29, just finished medical school, and he was treating COVID patients. And he was one of those good souls who wanted to save everyone. And as you, as you know, by... I'm watching the news. Brazil is totally out of control, the number of cases of COVID. And he just couldn't, of course, he couldn't save them all. And there were so many patients that he lost. And he just couldn't take it. Of course, it's not, it's never the only reason because we know there are a lot of other things involved with, with the suicide. But right now, they are just trying to grapple with that, with the loss. And they're in the very beginning of stages. It's been a week only. And every day she sends me a text message. Well, I went to his apartment today and I found this book. So they're trying to piece together the puzzle. I found this book and I was wondering, because you know about suicide, do you think this has anything to do? And then the other day she will she would text me again and, and and she actually said, I learned so much. I came to his apartment and I opened his drawers. I always knew he was a very simple, simple uh, person. He, he was not materialistic. He came from a very rich family, never took a penny from them. And she said, Paula, I, I was the one who had to go there and get his stuff and put it together. And he had like three pairs of socks. He had 
two pants and three shorts and the most so simple and I kept looking at his things that this is this is a wealthy person and for him this had no value so they're trying to piece together and she said she actually said you know I don't think he was ready for this world he was out of this world he just couldn't fit in so that's another answer right there right so they're in the very very early stages but what I always found over the years, I've been interviewing so many people and they come to me and talk about their loss. And I often ask, do you, do you, do you have the answer to, as, as to why they did it? And sometimes they have years and years of, of pieces together and they say, well, he was going through this and also he had this loss and he had sometimes mental illness and they'll go on and on and on, but still they can't say why because it goes against the most basic instinct of human beings, which is self-preservation, right? It's really hard to 100% say that's why they did it. So I think it's always present. You hardly ever find the period at the end of the sentence why they did it because of this, because we also know that it's never just one thing. You may have a trigger, but you have to investigate the life prior to the suicide to try to understand. So uh, I think why is always there in a way. Yeah, it's interesting to think about how there's so many factors and there's a lot that remains unknown and some things that are known and, and this general idea that when someone dies of suicide, it's often because they are in tremendous amounts of pain, emotional mental psychic pain and that pain has leads them to a place of hopelessness and feeling like death is the only way to get out of that pain or to end that pain. But the details of what goes into creating or magnifying or exacerbating that pain and that moment for that person, those are, it's, it sounds like for many people, it's impossible to find all those pieces because there's a a synergy that happens there. Yeah, of course. And, and I'm so glad you mentioned that because there is, we often, when we hear about a suicide, the first question, of course, is why? What happened? And we all always look for one single answer, right? Oh, because he just got divorced or because she just lost her house or they lost a, a kid or, and it's never just one thing. Again, it's a trigger. And I think that the, the other aspect of it too that makes it really hard to find answers is that although we can try to piece it together, that's intellectual, right? That's you trying to be rational about something that is 100% emotional. And the answer, the intellectual answer, the uh, answer to why in terms of facts may be there, but it's really hard to face the emotion of the loss. So the answer, intellectual answer is there, but the emotional one is really hard to find. Yeah, it almost makes me think sometimes that the brain is doing what it does, which is like circling through and cycling through and trying to find answers. And it's almost a distraction is not the word I'm looking for, but almost a way of protecting the heart space of if the brain slows down of looking for answers, then the heart space where the where the grief lies or where the, the pain lies, that can get a lot louder. Of course, yeah. And it's necessary and it's natural and it's a protective thing that the brain does to you, right? 
if you can't face the emotion right now, let's look. Let's let's look for logic. You know that let's let's try to find the answer and put it together and have some kind of narrative that makes sense. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make sense of something that makes zero sense emotionally. So you do that first, and that's why grief. Uh, suicide grief is different from many other types, and I'm not saying it's worse or better. It's just, it has its peculiarities. And one of them is that some of the emotions, for example, sadness, that in other kinds of deaths, deaths may sink in and show up very early on. And for suicide, it takes much longer, many, many times, because you have so many questions to answer. You have the shock of suicide. You have many times anger that gets there, which brings back, brings some kind of guilt sometimes because you're not supposed, quote unquote, supposed to be angry at someone who just died. So by the time all of that is processed, that's when the sadness of the loss sinks in. And sometimes you get into cycles. Anger is one of them. Anger gets you into this cycle of, I'm angry, how could, how could he or she do that to me or to our kids or to his family or to his friends and you get angry at them and then how can I get angry at someone who just died and I love? And then you feel guilty, but then you go back again to the anger and you go into cycles and cycles of that. I'm thinking about the two emotions you highlighted. The anger, which oftentimes can feel very intense and can almost feel like rage, and then the guilt and how you've described that those two emotions seem to have a very um, closely connected relationship when it comes to grief. And, you know, I asked, how do you support, you know, clients that you work with around that idea of why and how do you support them in that cyclical anger, guilt, anger, guilt piece that might be happening for some people? Hmm, that's It's a very tough one because... Beneath the anger, there is so much underneath. And especially with families, we have to be very careful because it's not just anger at the person who died. Sometimes it's anger and you start blaming those who stayed, who were left behind, family members. And that can have such a destructive effect in families. So they, it, it's a very natural, and it happens with everyone who knows about who gets to know anyone who died um, by suicide is we're looking for answers, but we're looking for the guilty ones too. I mean, who is guilty for them? You can't blame the person who died because they're dead. So who was the bad parent? And I feel so bad for parents when a kid dies by, dies by suicide because it's so common for, for society to do. What were the parents, right? How could they not see what was going on? Where did they go wrong? So in families, one of the things that I try to at least bring awareness to, because I know anger, it has its cycle and, and you have to give it time, but just be very careful at for, you know, pointing fingers, because that's sometimes it's just a way of you maybe trying to deal with your guilt. You feel guilty, but it's way too hard for you to face that. So you point your finger at someone else. So these are the things that you have to really watch out for and try to try to bring awareness into that. But of course, always say, you know, there is a, a lot to be angry about. So let's just go deep into that and 
and look at the big pictures because they need to talk about it. And if they don't have a safe space to do that, they will do it by again blaming somebody somebody else and even it, it it doesn't have to be related to the death itself i've seen many times the relationship for example you are not a good daughter to him you're not saying that they were responsible but you're going to question the relationships too so i was a good i was a good wife or i was a good brother but you were not you were not very nice to him so all these conflicts you have to really look into not just the person who's grieving, but the dynamics of the family as well, and who is it's, it's affecting and how it's affecting individually, because again, grief is individual. Yeah, that's so layered, right? I mean, I think when, we're, when people are in grief, they are already feeling isolated. They're grieving the fact that someone in their life died of suicide because of so many factors, including stigma, oftentimes that uh, exacerbates that isolation. And then if you have the anger and the pointing fingers and the blaming within the family structure, then more social support starts to fray for them as well. So it sounds like such important work to help people, you know, validate and normalize that anger and then help bring awareness to like, where are we directing that anger and how helpful is that in this moment? Or is it causing more damage and, and disconnection with the people who, who might be able to be here for us in our grief? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. And you, you mentioned isolation. That's something else. It, it's so different when you're grieving someone by, that died by suicide, because you feel, as you said, grief is isolated in itself, right? You always feel isolated because it's your pain. And there's, there's no one who will ever understand your pain and connect with it the way you do. But with suicide, you're so alone. Um, I, I read one time, I think it was Thomas Joyner who said, when you lose someone to suicide, you lose your, your phone book, your address book, because you lose so many people. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. Some will blame you. You lose some communities. And I've heard that from religious communities that they feel that they can talk about suicide because it's so condemned by religion, which is fortunately changing. But you feel so alone and I think that that's one of the reasons why you start to look for guilty parties when it comes to suicide too. Because it's you with your pain, you lose your support system, you isolate yourself, and then again, it, it becomes this vicious cycle, right? That you, you're alone and you push people away because you're angry. And I have to say that in terms of emotions, the people that I've, I've interviewed over the years and, and that I've treated over the years that are get more stuck are the ones who cannot deal with the anger, don't know what, what to do with the anger. It really makes you stuck. It's hard to move over that. You really have to talk about your anger and let it out and, and find other ways to move through your grief because anger makes you really, really stuck. And it's hard to move from there. What was most helpful for you in kind of moving through and navigating any anger you had after your dad's death? You know, in my family, we often talk about this. And for some mysterious reasons, we never felt angry at our father for doing what he did. We all all of us, and, and that's a good thing in my family, we always talked about it. We never called it what it wasn't. 
we always use the word suicide. We were always very upfront and honest about that. And we talked about the struggles. We tried to understand and figure out what happened and, and everything, but we never felt angry at him. We always understood where he was in his life and how difficult it was for him to, to see any other way out. But anger was never there. We always felt, I have two sisters, and every time we talk about it, it's just a huge sadness that he couldn't see some other way out. We understand and we, we, never, we never had this reaction of how could he do this to us? No, he did it to himself. And, and we, even my mom wasn't angry at him. We never felt that. It seems to really speak to that, the power of a shared understanding within a family or within a community or even within just a network and, and how supportive that can feel when other people share your view of things and you're not having to argue against your own or argue against theirs. There's just a connection that can exist there. Yes. And I think the, the ability that we had as a family to talk about it and be open and to share our emotions and, uh, and to try to understand, we always understood that we grieved differently, very differently. Me and my sisters, very, we had very different ways of grieving but we never judged. So I think that helps a lot in, in being very open about it being suicide. I remember I, I, talking, I was talking to a friend a few months after my dad died and she asked, well, wh what did he die of? And I said, well, suicide. And she said, don't say that word. You should never say the word. And I said, listen, you are the one who has a problem with the word, not me. Yeah, it reminds me of in my own family. My grandmother died when I was in high school and she was hit and killed by a train and never could find out if it was suicide or an accident or if somebody pushed her and the medical examiner originally ruled her death a suicide. And because, you know, Italian immigrants, very Catholic in New York, I remember my aunt bringing a, a court case or getting a lawyer to get the medical examiner to change, to change. the the death certificate because they were so worried that she wouldn't be able to have a Catholic funeral and be buried next to my grandfather. And as a high schooler, I was like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> like, Why are we not calling it what everybody knows it is? Like, it just didn't make any sense to me. But I wasn't, I wasn't raised in that traditional religious environment. So it was a disconnect yeah. for me. But I've always I think that's one of the reasons why I love working at the Ducky Center where we value so much being open and honest. So thank you for the work that you're doing around that as well. And Paula, one of the things I'm wondering about is, I know it's been 15 years since your dad died, but what would you most want him to know about your life right now? Hmm. That's, an, that's a, uh, an ironic question because I think one, the thing that I'm most proud of in my life right now is the work that I do to prevent suicide but I couldn't, I couldn't share, well, I wouldn't be doing it if you were here, right? Because that's, that, that's what brought me into this. But you know, when, when I think about what, if you were alive, what would be different in our relationship? I, I often think about that. And I just wish that I could go back in time with the knowledge that I have now and the conversations that I could have with him that would be more open that would be more about his pain and trying to show him some other ways, you know, other ways out and 
to actually, and even the things that I know about him that he, he kept from us, the secrets. I wish I could have this conversation and say, why did you have to kill your father for us and, and never talk about him? What was so shameful? And just have a very open conversation about the things I didn't know about him. That's one of the things that I think about nowadays. That's a great point about the irony of, you know, so many folks end up finding some purpose in their life based on the grief that they've gone through, whether it's working in the field of suicide prevention or going on to facilitate a grief group or writing a book or whatever it is. And then to think like, oh, here's this aspect of my life that gives me so much purpose and I would never be doing it if I hadn't had this person in my life die. So it is, it's interesting to carry those two realities. Speaking of purpose and of all the the work that you're doing in the world, could you tell us real quickly about your podcast and your book and how listeners can connect with you? Yes. Um, so my book is called Understanding Suicide, Living with Loss, Paths to Prevention. And you, can, and you can find it on Amazon. My podcast, everything is called Understand Suicide. So my podcast is called Understand Suicide and what I do with my podcast is to bring a message of hope to either those who are at risk for suicide or people who are grieving. So I have a lot of interviews, they're all interviews with specialists, people who talk about grief and who do grief work, or a lot about any topic that's related to suicide, like mental illness, personal crisis, dealing with pain, emotions, cultural factors. So I interview a lot of people who attempted suicide too, but found meaning in their lives and changed it. So it's always the main objective is always to, to let them know that there is, there is hope out there. This is not a solution or it's not the only way. And I also have my YouTube channel and my website, understandsuicide.com. Well, thank you so much for your work and for your time today. And Listeners, as always, I will link to all the ways that you connect, can connect with Paula and her work in our show notes. And Paula, thank you again for taking time to talk with me. It's always feels like extra special to talk to another podcast host on the show. <laughs> thank you. And I love your show. I listen to it all the time. I'm always browsing through it to see what's news and, and, and listen. It's a beautiful work. And I love the Doggy Center. As I told you before we started recording, I want to volunteer there as soon as this nightmare is over. Well, we look forward to that day too. And listeners, thank you so much for being part of our listening community. We just appreciate every time that you scroll through and and choose to listen to one of these episodes. If you want to connect with me, you can reach me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. You can also learn more about our program, the Dougie Center at D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G forward slash griefoutloud. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.